Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Do you like beer? Do you like free? How about, you guessed it, free beer? As a valued listener, we'd like to bestow upon you just that. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious and painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash chels and cover just the postage of four ninety five. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Chels podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's ten free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise, then, that they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand, and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains the theme and individual beers you'll receive, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Don't like dark beers? Choose the light plan. Easy. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash Chels to get your case free. And don't forget right now, the Chels podcast listeners get two extra free beers. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Chels. Well, here we are. This is a, a new thing for us. We're going to be playing a game called Are You Recording? Um, and our first uh, entrant on this Are You Recording is Mr. Andy Saunders. 
does appear to be recording, but I can't guarantee that it will continue recording for the whole episode. Okay, so what we will do at various points of the game, we will check to see if Andy is recording, and mm-hmm. uh, we will hopefully get this whole programme done in one. Um, how are you, Andy? Good, man. How are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Actually, I'm looking out my window and the sun is shining. So it's, uh, even though I've said good evening to everyone, it's actually daytime. But yes, it's quite nice today. Yeah, it's, uh, it's nice. It's been uh, a wild old winter, isn't it? Yeah, it has. It's been weird, but not particularly cold. It's just been pretty hefty and for everyone out there who's suffered with floods and what have you you know thinking of you you know it's not been easy winter for anyone and and maybe sometimes when it's not cold either that makes it even more miserable it's just been so wet yeah it has it really i don't think my son has played football for you know for for weeks because of the sogginess of the pitches that he plays on um it's 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 not good for for football in the UK generally at youth level. Just can't get any games on. No, it's it's really I mean, unless you play, of course, on on four G Astro. Yeah, well, that's it. And then you know, do you do you still get skin burns on things like that, or is Astro moved on? Oh, Astro's moved on hugely now. I mean, you'd be hard pressed sometimes to tell the difference between grass and Astro. It's it's um, you don't get those those carpets that we used to play on in the 90s they're all now basically artificial grass right so so no nasty i i used to get those ones I that mean, you could get... still you could still probably get a burn from it because it's it's you know it's, it's a plastic based artificial surface but it not like you used to get on on those um you know those mats that we used to play <laughs> on with sand based astro that we used to play on um no these are much better they're in fact they're quite remarkable and and it, it seems to be the way that that pitches are going and should go because there's always been an argument in youth football about the kind of football that that english players play um because we can't play on on non-wet surfaces we tend to launch the ball long we tend to play the ball up in the air whereas if you're in a country that has a uh, fairly consistent climate and can play um, on on dry pitches. You tend to play the ball on the floor, so it's it's been part of the English football psyche for a long time, and it'll be interesting to see what happens if we do transition more into four G pitches. Interesting. You you've done quite a bit of research on this. How come? Well, not me. I mean, there there has been quite a lot of research done on it. I just happen to have read it, and it's um, it's very interesting. And if you think about players coming through at youth level, managers are picking you know big, strong, physical players uh, because they're able to compete for the ball physically on these wet pitches in, in on muddy pitches are able to kind of um, to to challenge for the ball in the air and hold the ball up and the smaller trickier flare players aren't coming through aren't getting the visibility because they can't play the kind of football they want to play because the pitches aren't good enough no well that's true well i suppose we should we'll talk about pitches in a minute and what happened on the one down at bournemouth but um i i just uh, I'm, I'm curious to know how you felt before we went into this weekend away to bournemouth they they're another one of these teams who've become a bogey side for us haven't they well, one of, one of the many. Yeah, what did I feel? I felt apprehensive. I, you know, I, I thought that we should go there and win the game because we're Chelsea Football Club and they're Bournemouth Football Club. And history would tell you that we are a better resourced, uh, better 
um, able team to go and beat teams who are sitting at that position in the table. But that all goes out the window this season. We just are maddeningly inconsistent. So I went into that game thinking, well, I hope I hope we can put our first back-to-back league win together since early November. Um, but I'm not convinced we will. So I think in last week's uh, predictions, I said that we, we might get a 2-0 win because I felt that we are capable of beating teams like Bournemouth. But I think I caveated that with saying, I'm not sure that we will. Because we just haven't this season. So going into the game, I was I, I didn't know what to feel. I just felt that this this might be the launch pad for a run of games. It might be another chapter in our inconsistency that, that, that has plagued this season. Yeah, no, I, I think it's true. And, and also, the, the other thing that has plagued this season, and I'm not, this is no pointing the finger of blame at anybody, because I think this has been a difficult season for a lot of reasons. And maybe it's become even more difficult because of how well we started. But it was a little bit like that last year with Sarri, you know, good run and then the the truth will out. Because a season is a long thing and consistency and injuries do play a part in it. But would you say that, Frank, the one thing that I think he's really struggled to find, and again, I don't think this is any questioning his coaching abilities, although I've seen people saying it, um, his struggle is to find not even the team that he wants to play, but the formation that he wants to play. He's adaptable, but do you think he needs to find a way, or is this just the nature of this squad, that we just have to get through this season and then get into the summer, and then we can see exactly where he is? And, and who he wants to buy. I, I think it's a combination of things. I definitely think he's learning strategically and tactically. I think we do need to really look at the defensive side of our game and our squad and the coaching of that. I don't think there's any doubt that there have been errors made strategically and tactically, defensively. Our defensive setup at set pieces for crosses for balls into the box generally, just hasn't been good enough this year. And I think you have to put a lot of that at the feet of the coaching staff, Frank included. That's not blaming or or finger-pointing. That's basically saying that's something that needs to improve. If you're looking at an end-of-term report or a a catch-up of where we are so far under the stewardship of Frank Lampard, defensively, we're not good enough. And I think that has to come partly down to the coaching, but also partly down to the personnel. We've got young players in that back four who are learning their trade, but they they need to be coached. I don't think at the moment our squad has enough depth and enough quality to compete over 38 league games and other cop competitions at the moment. I think we're seeing cracks at the moment with key injuries to players like, or players to key injury... Uh, Injuries to key players, I'll get it right in a minute, uh, to uh, to Tammy and to uh, Pulisic and to Hudson-Odoi and other players that potentially could have made a real difference in recent games. Uh, we haven't got the squad to cope for that. If you look at who's coming off the bench, it's not really good enough to sustain this this period of games that we're in at the moment, particularly against elite sides. So I think there's a lot to sort out at the end of the season. Some of that is going to come down to investing in the squad and some of it's going to come down to a long, hard look at the coaching. Yeah, I, I think I think it's true. I mean, it is hard, though, because he hasn't 
got anything that he wants this year just by the nature of the transfer ban. So, um, I don't know. Well, you I, say that, but what does he want? We don't know what he wants. I mean, you're making that assumption, but what, what does he want? Uh, well, I've no idea. What I'm saying is that by the nature of having a tra- transfer ban, we can't find out. The only way we can find out what Frank wants, well, maybe we've seen a sign in, in a signing like Zayek, is the only way we'll find out is in the summer when we see who gets approached yeah. and who comes in. That's what I think is really interesting. Normally, you get an idea. Well, about- we've had one transfer window. Yeah, but uh, look, I... I I don't know how you feel, but I really don't subscribe to this point of view that there's some big argument going on between, uh, you know, Frank and the board. The idea that Granis, Marina Granovskaya is the one who makes decisions and stops Frank, I think it's nonsense. For me, I'd, I, of course, this is speculation. I would think there is only one man who agrees or denies transfers uh, in and out of that club, and that's Roman, isn't it? I would have thought. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Listen, I, I think it's ec- extremely naive to think that one person has, uh, beyond the owner, has power over transfers. I would imagine it's a collaborative process. I would imagine the complexities of the international transfer market and the huge and sophisticated mechanism that goes into the financing of those transfers means that it's not a case of Frank picking up a menu and choosing something and giving it to Marina and she goes out and buys it. It's a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot more negotiations at all sorts of levels, both financial, with the player, with the player's agent, with the with the player's parent club. There's all sorts of stuff going on here. It's a very, very complex process. And I think people get suckered into believing that, you know, Frank says he he wants something, then throws his toys out of his pram if he doesn't get it, and that Marina is deliberately blocking it. And there's, it doesn't make any sense if you if you think about it. If you take a step back and look at the situation pragmatically, it's a corporation. It's a big business, and they make these decisions based on a metric of lots of factors. Uh, and so we have to kind of take the emotion out of these out of this thinking and and look at it pragmatically and think look if you're going to spend upwards of 50 million pounds on a player that's not going to be a snap decision that's not going to be something that's that's based on a feeling there's going to be an awful lot of research a lot of scouts watching the player a lot of uh, analysis done and then and then you move into the complexities of finance so I, I think people on social media speculating about transfers is 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 a little bit hilarious to be honest yeah i mean look i, I get the feeling frank was frustrated but i think Pretty much every manager was frustrated, apart from the odd one or two who got a signing. It's all very well, people saying, oh, it was a, a bumper January for for people being transferred. Well, yes and no. There's, there's very few big names that went. There's two or three. You know, Bruno Fernandes probably to Man U is, is the biggest uh, transfer of them all, and he's already working out. But Well, Haaland to Borussia Dortmund. Yeah, well, well I'm, I'm just talking in this country. But yeah, Haaland, I mean, that was an incredible signing. And I'm really surprised that nobody from Spain or from over here or whatever really made an effort to get him. Because well, he, uh, look, the, the, the thinking behind that is that he is going to go to Spain at the end of a season in the Bundesliga that that you know that 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 he's gone to Borussia Dortmund as a uh the next step in Mm. his career but ultimately he will end up at an elite European club not that Borussia Dortmund aren't but I think that he will end up at one of the top top teams within certainly within the next two seasons yeah I I think you're right it's it's interesting how 
I, I feel sorry for teams like Dortmund because they keep coming up with these fantastic sides and just when they get to a certain level they all get taken out and moved on a bit a bit like a at this moment in time a grander version of Ajax I guess mm. that they they've almost and you feel sorry for them because they're almost like feeder clubs and that must be tough as a fan mustn't it if you if you get to know and see players and get to love them and see them starting out and blossoming and then they're gone um but I guess well, you take there, a pragmatic there's, there's approach I mean you could argue that Porto are that team you know it used to be Atletico Madrid not so much these days but there are teams throughout Europe that have always been selling clubs um, Southampton were always a selling club look at the players that have come through from Southampton I think that um, the way that the money flows in in football these days is is evening that up a little bit in that players through the leagues that they're in a uh, sorry uh, teams in the leagues that they're in are, are getting a huge amount of money but there's also always going to be a disparity between the top clubs and those clubs maybe a level or two down yeah I, I think I think it's a, a really interesting world to be a football fan maybe you watch games you go oh, he used to be for us or he used to be for us and maybe you take pride in their success maybe that's how you deal with it as a fan you know we, we've had this discussion about um, and I, I see you've been having a few words about it um, on social media about the fact that there is no entitlement there are Chelsea fans who have only known winning and i guess that's really hard for people to understand what it's like to lose you know we are of a generation that understood only losing and i still pinch myself every day when we win something you know because i still find it incredible but uh, my whole argument was about the fundamental what what the fundamentals of being a football supporter are there's a difference i think between being a fan and being a supporter I know that that sounds odd, but I genuinely think that if you are a supporter of a football club, you have to be there through thick and thin, not just thick. You have to appreciate, uh, you have to under, you have to experience the the bad times to appreciate the good times. And I think there is a generation of Chelsea fans who are perhaps post two thousand and five, who, as you say, have only really understood winning, um, and so are in shock at the period that Chelsea Football Club are in at the moment, which is a, a transitional period. And I find it astonishing the levels of entitlement that I see on social media after games when people throw their toys out their pram and individually blame the players and are generally unsupportive of the club. Because, you know, I say it time and time again, support with the clues in the name. You, for me... Winning is a byproduct of supporting a club. It's you know it's the ultimate aim. Don't get me wrong. We all want to go to a football stadium and see us win. Um, you know I'm in it for the winning. You know there's nothing like winning trophies. There's nothing like the the bragging rights you get and the sense of satisfaction of supporting a team that win things. That's the ultimate aim. But it's not. It's not the whole. It's not what football supporting is about. You support a club, whether that club is good or bad. They say you can change your wife and girlfriend. You can never change your football club. So you've got to understand that you're not going to win every game. And I think there is this mentality out there that when Chelsea lose, it's time for the apocalypse. And it really isn't. It's just part of the process. And the process is long. I've been supporting, like you, for Chelsea for, for well over four decades. And, you know, I've seen the good, I've seen the bad, I've seen the pretty, and I've seen the ugly. 
Yeah, and that I, is all part of the journey of being a football fan. And I think there is a generation of Chelsea fans who don't really understand that. And it slightly depresses me. Well, OK. Well, there's another way of looking at it. Maybe we need to help or people need to help re-educate or educate these people to understand that. Because, uh, you know, it, it is different. Football is very different. The, the immediacy of media and press and stories and this, that and the other. Everything's a disaster from the first moment something everything is heightened on. you're right yeah. everything is everything is heightened everything is at fever pitch or sorry to use an arsenal reference but everything is hmm. is 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 incredibly heightened at the moment it's either terrible or it's brilliant you know and we lose a lot of the nuance in in the reporting because of as you say that 24 hour news cycle and that immediacy of everything yeah and I, I, maybe we need to just uh, offer some sort of help to people because it, it must be a very straight i i have no idea what it must feel like just to wake up and be a supporter of a club that just continually wins things you know man city will go through this as well you, you know there will be people in in 10 years time who have never experienced the misery that the man city supporters felt like us for so many years so yeah, maybe we need to yeah, tell the odd story here and there of of some of the funnier times, you, you know, well, when you lose. That. We but do you, that with yeah, our exactly. first, worst and best. We, you know, we do that. Look, I, I think, yes, I, of course, I think it's an ongoing process of education. I think we have to point the younger supporters towards our history. I, I'm very conscious of coming across as a year da. I'm very conscious of coming across as some grumpy old man, which I am, um, you know, and, and, you know, sitting there with my pipe and slippers and going, in my day, and I understand that the younger generation probably don't want to hear that, and their experience of football is very different to mine. But they are part, those younger supporters are part of the continuity of a very long history of our club. And they will be the ultimate guardians of our history when when we've gone and so i think it's important that 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 those younger supporters understand that there's an arc to being a football supporter that there are good times and there are bad times it isn't all just milk and honey and i'm not laying this at the door of every young football supporter there are plenty of young football supporters out there who are well aware of our history who totally get it who totally understand what it is to be a Chelsea supporter and and, and what it is to be a football supporter generally there's 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 lots and lots of them I'm not even saying that they're in the majority but there are an awful lot who are not aligned with the long-term history of Chelsea Football Club and whose short-term experience has maybe clouded the conception of what a football supporter is if that makes any sense yeah no it does and and i, I think you know it, this is football and maybe the club has a part to play in this right at the moment if at the end of the season we're out of the european places if at the end of the season half our team have seemed to have disappeared from view as decent players then the greatest thing the club can do is just let a, a little bit of continuity happen and go you know what it's not been a great year, but we're going to carry on. We need to see some order in things when things go wrong, rather than the normal reaction is if things don't work out this season, is the coach would go, the manager would go, and we get a whole new roster of people in, and then they have months to try and adjust and adapt. Well, hopefully what we'll see is a, a bit of a longevity here and understand for the first time in pretty much the modern history of Chelsea – see a long-term plan actually trying to be executed and not destroyed as soon as everything goes wrong. And I think that's, that's an important place to be. 
Yeah, I think I think there's a lot to be said for that. And and this idea of continuity again is is probably not part of the experience of a lot of younger fans because frankly, it's worked. If you sack the manager and get a new manager in, you know, under Roman Abramovich, that policy has worked. Second manager, win a league title. Second manager, win the Champions League. Second manager, win the double. It, it's it's been part of the DNA of Chelsea Football Club since 2005 to refresh, refresh, refresh. And that's been a successful policy. So the idea of taking a step back, taking a long-term view, experiencing some pain for some long-term game, that's not been part of the experience of younger Chelsea fans. So there's a level of them having to understand that if we are going to go down this road, it does require the buy-in of everybody. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's move on to the Bournemouth game, because there are some interesting uh, changes, and probably the most interesting change for me was Rudiger uh, going out of the side for for the first time. Tamori coming back in, we ended up with a back three. Um, Rudiger for me, and I've said this a few times I love Rudiger as a player, but I don't think he's the player at the moment. I don't think he's where he was. Um, maybe that's because of injuries. Maybe he needs someone solid alongside him so that I'm not sure he's the leader of that that defence. And maybe this is Frank's worry at the moment as well. So he brought in Tamori to, to be alongside Christensen. And Tamori, the one thing we've always said, looks like a very good player, but especially in early games, he drops a ricket. And he did that again in the Bournemouth game. It's almost like he needs to make a mistake to wake himself up. He didn't have the greatest of games. Uh, it was his game back. But this is a fundamental problem for Frank, is trying to limp through the season still here over halfway through not knowing who his best centre-back pairing is. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Rudiger, I think, has got a huge amount of passion. I think he's great, probably for the dressing room. I think he's really good on the pitch in terms of geeing players up. But I think leadership requires a certain amount of measured understanding of what your teammates need. And Rudiger is one to, you know, to grab his fellow players by the by the lapels and shake them um, and shout and moan and throw his arms up. And I'm not sure that necessarily is leadership. I think that's passion and the two things are, are very different. I think Rudiger is an, is an exceptionally good defender. But I think you've hit upon something there about whether he is the person to lead the line. I would imagine Rudiger would be an, a, a, an even better player if he was playing alongside John Terry. Um, or he was playing alongside Marcel Desailly, or he was playing alongside a, a centre-back that was a true leader, because he could then use that passion and that energy, knowing that he's got someone there directing the traffic next to him. Uh, I think that's a very important point. So Rudiger, I think, needs needs to really find the right partner, or we need to find the right partner for Rudiger, or we need to you know look at Rudiger and, and, and work out whether he's the, rest, the best person for that position. But it is interesting how much of a cliff he's fallen off this season. Um, Tamore, well, it wasn't just one ricket, was it? You no. know, he was poor, and there's there's no there's no sugarcoating it. He didn't have a good game. He was subbed off after 64 minutes. He looked a little bit fragile and a little bit nervous, and didn't dominate. Positionally, wasn't particularly good decision-making wasn't good, I think it's an issue. And I wonder, again, how much of that is down to the coaching and how much of that is down to the boy himself. But it, it's not right. 
No, it's not. And uh, again, I, I kind of feel sorry for Frank because he is in a, he is in a place where whoever he puts in, none of them seem to be crying out and saying, you have to pick me for the next game after this performance. Well, Christensen does. Yeah, well, but Christians act, what I'm saying is people who come in, Christensen came in and has stayed and has well, looked like yeah, a permanent well, he's, fixture He's absolutely now. kind of nailed your point, really, isn't it? He's, yeah. he's come in and he has demanded to be picked. And his last five or six, seven games have been excellent. He was he was probably one of the standout players, I thought, on Saturday. None, none of that Mac 4 were amazing, um, but I thought Christensen was again making a really good case for development he looks like a player that's developing throughout before our eyes uh reese james looks like he's developing or those last couple of games he's probably still a little bit in shock having been ripped to pieces in the Bayern munich game um but it's it, you know there's some development going on there my problem with tamori is i'm just where's the development really i want to see it now you've taken some of these young players tamori james abraham mount out of the championship put them in the premier league and it's a big step up. We've always said it's a big step up. So this is their first season of getting a run of games in the Premier League. We have to give them a certain amount of slack for that. That they are learning on the job uh, after you know after a, 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 a long arduous season so far hasn't really gone their way it's really really tough for them at the moment and I think Frank is is doing a good job in just keeping them motivated and keeping their heads up keep picking them keep believing in them and I think we'll start to see the benefits of that moving forward and this this all plays into how we should support the team and how we should back Frank and how we should back his vision and whether we're prepared to do that because this is part of the vision backing these young players who are making mistakes who are finding themselves outclassed on occasion but keep going keep going keep going make sure that you just keep developing as a player and we will see the benefit of that I'm sure in seasons moving forward yeah the the other thing that i think is important to to recognize is that the older players in the team have a major role to play and I, i'm slightly concerned some of them have not been up to the mark and perhaps we're seeing the real issue is say players like Jorginho, who i love as a footballer but where he plays it means that he is constantly getting yellow cards because he's not good enough at tackling he's not quick enough to challenge players and so many cards you know he's got a two-game ban coming up now for for what happened in the Bournemouth game and that slightly concerns me that I'm starting to get a slight feeling that he's worrying about his own game and and how he deals with that and isn't able to just be the steady and calm influence that we'd seen say earlier in the season. But that that's a squad issue. That that's not his game. And and we're asking Jorginho to play an enforcer role in exactly. Midfield, and that's not his game, you know. And so that that goes back to what I said at the very beginning about the squad that we've got and about the players that we can bring in when we have injuries to players like Kante when we have injuries. Uh, around the pitch where Frank can't really do anything but put Jorginho in that place. We know Jorginho is not the best tackler in the world. Paul Scholes wasn't the best tackler in the world, but nobody said he wasn't a great footballer. It's it's you know it's it's an issue when you're playing players like Jorginho in midfield who 
whose role is to find space, whose role is to play the simple parts, whose role is to keep the tempo ticking, not to go crunching into tackles with players like Phil Billings. You know, it's not it's not his game. And so I started to see, particularly on social media, the same old lightning rod criticism of Jorginho with people not really willing to accept that 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 isn't Jorginho's role and that the problem is a wider systemic problem within the squad and not about that one player because when Jorginho had the support around him earlier in the season when Kante was playing when Kovacic was and and himself were playing when when you know when we had that level of support around him where people could go around and, and play a bit more of an enforcer role. In Kante's case, pressing the ball higher up the pitch. Jorginho was getting the time and space. He was doing the job and suddenly everybody was going, look at Jorginho. He's amazing. He's got a shout for player of the season. Now he's lost that support. People are looking at Jorginho and going, he can't tackle. He's reckless. He's getting yellow cards. He's let us down. And I just think that's stupid. Yeah, but the the point is, I totally agree with what you're saying, but but I'm saying putting Jorginho in this situation is unfair on the player. I've, That's I've what got, I just said. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think, is there possibly a way that you could actually switch it so that Kovacic drops back instead? I don't uh, think Kovacic is a fantastic tackler either. No, but he's, he's a bit meatier. He's a bit meatier. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess, but then you lose that forward momentum, don't mm. you? You, lo- you lose what you were talking about last week, which is the Essien-like ability to pick the ball up, drive the team forward. You lose that. So I guess you're, you're, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Do you, can Jorginho do that? He doesn't do it with the same energy and verve that Kovacic does it. So are you prepared to lose that drive for a little bit of defensive solidity? I, I guess Frank's decision is no. Yeah, th- that's what I'm saying. It's, it's very interesting. I don't think there's any right or wrong. It's how you approach it. What I think will be interesting is the the floating around the, the team uh, of Ruben, um, who does, as we all know, offer something slightly different to all of them. Um, how he'll come back from the injury. You know, Frank's been very reluctant to give him time because just when he thought it was time for Ruben, something has happened in the game and he's had to change his thinking. So I think he mentioned about how he wanted to bring Ruben on in in um, last week, uh, but the game changed and he couldn't. And I would guess it was the same with Bournemouth as well. If we'd have gone in at 2-0 um, at half-time against Bournemouth, I have every feeling that after about... 15 minutes of the second half on the hour mark, perhaps um, we would have seen Ruben, but because it became uh, a desperate situation, I don't think he wanted to chuck Ruben in. And that I, that I, I believe is the right thing to do. We want to protect him. We want him to get minutes on the clock, but we don't want it so that he has to perhaps go too far, having just come off the bench um, and out of the whole injury period. Well, I would just add this note of caution. Players are always much better when they're injured. Yeah, that's true. You know, when, when, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, he, he's the Messiah. He's going to come back and totally revolutionise and galvanise our midfield. He's coming back off a serious injury. He, we know before he got injured that he has had in the past stamina issues, that his game is not fully formed. He's, a, I think, an exceptional footballer. He could be an exceptional player for Chelsea. His role in the team has never really been 
that well defined so that's a challenge i would caution against thinking that ruben loftus cheek is going to come in and suddenly revolutionize the way we play i think he's going to be a brilliant addition to the squad he may add that driving force that allows kovacic to sit slightly he may offer other options and other dynamics but he is not necessarily going to be the in inverted commas answer no, but I think he's a great welcome re-addition to the squad. Of course I, he is. I, yeah, no, there's, there's no doubt about that. But I, th- I, I get the sense that people are, 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 are hanging on this idea that he's going to come in and be the missing link. And I'm not sure necessarily that he is, particularly no. straight away or particularly this season. No, I think it's true. So anyway, with the game, um, we had so much possession. We had so much control. Um, my, my main thing about this there there are two things i want to discuss one is marcus alonso saving us again having been out in the wilderness for weeks and weeks and he's come back and he's actually had a pretty good week for chelsea Uh, and the fact that we cannot hold on to a lead uh bournemouth i believe have only ever come back from being uh down about four times and to be fair they nearly won it in the end um but First of all, Marcus Alonso, uh, incredible brace that he scored. I've got, I've got a question for you. If we all believe, and I know that you think this as well, that Marcus Alonso is not a great defender and he really suffers when he's in a back four and when he's in a five, he can come back and shuttle back and help out. But actually, he comes alive when he's in the top part of the field. Is there any merit in thinking about playing him in the front three and forget about his defensive duties? I'm not sure I'd play him in the front three, but I would certainly play him in a midfield four, if that makes sense. Or, you know, or if we were playing 4-1-4-1 or 4-4-2 or something like that, I think in the same way that we shifted Ryan Bertrand into the left of midfield in the Champions League final... I, I can see him playing that role. And I think there have been times when he's played ahead of Emerson, you know, sometimes in midfield. I think in that role, but in the formation that we're playing at the moment, I don't think he's a front three player. I don't think he has those tools. I don't think he's uh, tricky enough to do that. But certainly playing him further up the pitch would be an option. But that would require a whole realignment of our formation which I'm not sure Frank is ready to do just yet I mean he is an interesting player he scored three braces three times two goals in the Premier League and all three of them have come away from home and he's uh you know he's a he's a mercurial player because I genuinely think he's he's very limited when it comes to defending but he does give you that ability to to move forward he's got an incredible touch you know out of all the players in the team the ability to to take the long ball down and to to control the ball and to move the ball quickly he's got all that in his armory he's got a great shot he can cross the ball he can run into the box he doesn't have the raw pace that you know that perhaps a front three player would need um he doesn't have the turning circle that perhaps a, a front three player would need i think it would be a risk to play him there yeah, no, I think I think it's just, it's just a question because he knows how to hit the target. That, that's. I mean, people are talking about you know, about Gareth Bale, aren't they? They're talk, they're saying that you know Gareth Bale started off in, in as a left full back and and progressed into a goal scoring left sided midfield player, 
um, and, and in some in some ways, a you know, an attacker. So you know, there's precedence for it. I'm not for a second saying that Marcus Alonso is at the same level as, as Gareth Bale, but he, you know, there are precedents for doing that. He's probably a little bit late in his career to be doing that, but um, it's 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 interesting that the, the Marcus Alonso issue. I mean, I've said all season that the left side of defence is an area that we seriously need to upgrade. So that so that does say where do you play Marcus Alonso? And if Pulisic comes back or Hudson Odoi comes back then there probably isn't any room for him in this formation. No, it's interesting. So I, the, the other thing uh, I think we, we, should, we should touch on, A, is our defence not able to cope with being up? Does it actually seem to put pressure on them? And B, was the most... Oh, sorry, sat- say that one again. What do you mean by that? It, once we go ahead in games... Oh, I see, right. Okay, yeah. Do you think our defence actually gets nervous and think, actually, now they're going to come at us more? And B, is the most satisfying thing about the Bournemouth game, if there can be a satisfying thing, is that we found a way to get back to at least parity in the game? Well, we should have won that game. There's no, there's yeah. no two ways about it. I mean, you talk about, about the possession. We had 73% possession. We had 23 shots, six on target, 14 corners. I mean, we, we had enough opportunities to create chances and then once again you know we had chances that we didn't take so that's an issue both ends of the pitch are an issue at the moment the ability to defend when under pressure and the ability to take the very few chances that you get in the Premier League that that's the issue that needs sorting out you know midfield yes there are issues in midfield there are we are we're a little bit porous we're a, we're a little bit lightweight in midfield but midfield I think is 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 okay the other, the two ends of the pitch are the problem. So, yeah, I think there's an element of, of of nervousness and mentality and a lack of perhaps belief at the back when we go ahead to defend, particularly from wide. Um, and at front, there just is a, a level of we're too nice up front. We're too nice. We're too. You, you you said it the other week when you said that there's a mentality that another chance will always come along. Well, perhaps it will, but we've got to take the ones in front of us if we're going to win football matches and we're going to dominate football matches. We can't have 73 possession, 23 shots, six on target, and 14 corners, and not score goals and expect to win games. No, it's true, and I think Frank mentioned it in one of his press conferences after the Bournemouth game that he thought we were too nice. So. He, at least Frank obviously listens to this podcast and gets the sort of gist of what's going on. Um, I mean, imagine if we had Diego Costa at the moment. You oh, know, I said, on, I said on social media, having watched Watford versus Liverpool and seeing Liverpool lose for the first time this season and seeing the attitude of a player like Troy Deeney up front, who is a elite shithouser, excuse my language, but that's the technical term. He's, he's elite at just getting in the faces of defenders and winding players up. Now, I'm not saying Troy Deeney is at the level of the kind, or the age of the kind of player that we should kind of buy. But, you know, wouldn't you want a Troy Deeney in this side at the moment? Wouldn't you want someone who has just had that level of malevolent presence up front? I would. I'd have it, I'd have it all day long. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, because that, how many times did Diego do something wonderful for us and it just picks a whole team up by their boots laces, doesn't it? And makes everyone perform. I mean, Diego Costa very rarely got sent off. He very rarely got, you know, if if ever, you know, he didn't get that many yellow cards. He was just very, very good at putting doubt in the heads of defenders by being so aggressive and so in their faces and so uncompromising. And I don't see a player in our team at the moment doing that. I don't see one player who's able to do that. And I think at this level of football, you've got to mentally dominate your opposition. And we're not doing that. 
No, I think it's true. Anyway, well, look, let's let's go to our man at the, on the ground, uh, Mr. Naz Kinsella, who has this little report from backstage at Bournemouth. Hi, guys. Nizar Kinsella, Goals Chelsea correspondent, reporting for the Chelsea. Um, just giving you an update after seeing Chelsea draw two all at the Vitality Stadium. Uh, smaller stadium, titled stadium, uh, and, and it means you get a real like sense of uh, closeness to the game, really, and it's it's quite interesting from that point of view. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, looking at the game, the you know Storm George was on, the heavens opened up when Chelsea went two one down, and they managed to claw it back to two two in a very chaotic, uncontrolled um, second half. Um, it was quite interesting sort of taking away what the game might mean. I mean, it, it's all, always a case of, you know, um, sometimes these things, you know, you, you just look at it and you think it's kind of same old, same old. And, and it was really from Chelsea, you know, uh, bad at both ends of the pitch, uh, maybe a lack of control and a bit of chaos at the end as well, which kind of characterises their season. Uh, but yeah, interesting. Frank Lampard increasingly in recent weeks isn't really protecting his players. He's like, uh, you know, how can... Uh, a left back be our best finisher, Marcos Alonso. Um, that was one of his sort of points. And then another one in his press conference was that, uh, you know, just like he sort of dug out Rudiger in recent weeks, he sort of did the same for Tamori. And I know a lot of people expected Tamori to be a saviour of some sorts, um, but, you know, he struggled to, on that game. And you could say, you know, beat out for the whole of 2020 and not playing a league game was a factor in that, and maybe it was. Uh, but. Yeah, he struggled. So, you know, Frank Lampard isn't making excuses for his players anymore and, and he feels like he's sending them out with the right instructions and all that and, and that, you know, individual defending is letting them down and you look at that second goal and you kind of think, yeah, I mean, that was individual defending and it's not really a structural issue. It was, it was more individual defending. But, yeah, there are worries there for Chelsea. Um, it's not going well, but, you know, staying in the top four is all well and good. But it's interesting seeing the players come off the pitch and... All of them were pretty downbeat. Not many were that willing to talk after the game. Um, yeah, it was it was a it was a struggle for us as journalists to sort of uh, get the most out of uh, our access to the players. So, yeah, tough tough one really. Uh, and injuries continue to mount up as well. So, all in all, it's a bit of a, a perfect storm right now that Chelsea are having to ride through, fight through, uh, and a big game to come. But certainly interesting times, and surely things will get better, right? And we're back. So yeah, there's Frank. I mean, it's it's a frustrating time for him, um, but I do think he still handles himself very very well with the press. Um, it's got to be hard, isn't it? Uh, coming into it, the, all eyes are on you. At first, everyone leaves you alone, but as you go on into the season further and further, it's the same sort of questions that keep appearing. People start questioning his ability to to find out his best team, and he plays the game pretty well, don't you think? I think so, yeah. I've said it before. I, I have complete faith. Yes, hurrah for complete faith in Frank. Oh, by the way, Andy, just one question. Are you recording? Oh, that's a good point. Let me check. <laughs> yep, still recording. Four, that's good. <laughs> so we don't have to do up to here again. That's just as well. <laughs> All right, well, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, a funny old week this week. We are entertaining the whole of Liverpool at uh, two points this week. We've got Liverpool in the cup um, and then we've got Everton uh, in the league. Um, let's just quickly talk about the Liverpool game um, and then in between we'll go to first, worst and best. But um, um, actually, no, we <clears throat> we will do something else. I'll keep you posted on that. Uh, Liverpool coming up. 
how how are you feeling about that? Are they going to send out a full side? Is it actually a bit of a worry that they lost at the weekend, so they'll put a proper side out? Or do we want to play a proper side? No, they're going to put a proper side out. There's no two ways about it. I think Jurgen Klopp is, sees that he's within touching distance of the double. Why wouldn't he? You know, he is fighting campaigns on a uh, number of fronts at the moment, so he's got to be sensible. But there's no reason whatsoever in a big game like this with an opportunity to win the double. Of course he is. I think we'd be crazy to think that he's not going to put anything but a very, very strong side out. And you know what? That's fine, as far as I'm concerned. Let's go in there and play a very good side. Because when we have played uh, this season against really good sides, sometimes that allows us to elevate our game. So I'm hoping that a big night under the lights at Stamford Bridge against Liverpool, I'm hoping and praying that the crowd turn up this week because, you know, as we said, they haven't in recent games, that the support at Stamford Bridge has got to be raucous. We've got to rock that stadium and we've got to create a huge atmosphere for our boys to shake off some of the disappointments of recent weeks and go out there and, and, and put an iconic performance in against one of our biggest rivals. And no half-half scarves. That's even the... Uh, uh, Chelsea Man U half-half scarf, ugly. Chelsea Liverpool half-half scarf, disgraceful, wouldn't you say? Unforgivable. <laughs> All right, well, look, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but uh, let's go to this commercial break. I'm Josh Schneiderweiler. And I'm John McKenzie. We know that the football news cycle never slows down. But sometimes, don't you wish it did? On the Football Today podcast, we give you in-depth analysis of the most interesting stories from around the world of football. And hear from the most knowledgeable journalists in the game. You can listen to each episode in the time it takes for a single commute. So join us now and subscribe to Football Today, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Um, Andy, uh, just to say, Football Today, I, I've, I've listened to some of their podcasts. Interesting. Um, there's one about Chelsea, about the stadium. Um, do we need to upgrade the stadium to keep up with the big clubs? I mean, what's your view on that? Do you think um, there is a, a, a case where we could be left behind all the other clubs if we don't build a bigger stadium? And do we think it will happen eventually? I think it has to happen eventually. I don't think we'll be left behind. Stamford Bridge isn't small. It's small by comparison to some of the you know mega stadiums that are being built at the moment. Um, but let's be honest, our main income is coming from broadcast. It's not coming from tickets. Although tickets is a you know it's it's a big contributor. Um, I, I just think we've got bigger battles to fight at the moment. I think this is a a time when we need to really think about investing in the squad. We need to think about what our identity is and where we're going on the pitch before we start thinking about infrastructure. Uh, I, I love Stamford Bridge. I would be sad to see Stamford Bridge go. I don't particularly don't want to spend three or four years at Wembley, but I guess you can't halt progress. You can't halt evolution. And if the money is there and the desire is there, at some point they're going to knock Stamford Bridge down and build a new structure. Uh, fair enough. Well, okay. Well, everyone, check out Football Today podcast. We like it. Um, okay, it's that time of the show where we go to uh, first, worst, and best Chelsea games. And Andy, this one is going to be really interesting. This is uh, 
coming all the way from America. Um, and the guy who's doing it is a guy called Blake Hampleman. I got really confused as to how to say his name because he sent me the message and he said, Hample, like you, uh, like you pronounce sample. Of course, Americans say sample and we say sample. So I think, oh, no, it's it's Hampleman. But apparently it's not. It's Blake Hampleman, who's a, a teacher in Illinois, who um, I think has come up with a really interesting selection. So here we go with his first worst and best Chelsea games. Hello, my name is Blake Hampleman, and I'm from a small town in the United States with a football fan population of about one, me. I'm a third grade teacher, so during my week, if Chelsea have a Champions League game or an FA Cup game at 2 p.m., I usually stop everything I'm doing and have my students watch the game with me. It's a great opportunity to share my passion for the Chelsea with my students and maybe also bring in a young generation to support the club. I'm 30 years old, so I would definitely be categorized as a newcomer to the Chelsea and its recent success. Andy will be rolling his eyes at me, probably calling me a plastic. I wasn't there when Zola scored the flick. I was a baby when Dixon was helping us get out of the second division, and I began my love of the team in the 2009-2010 season when we secured the double. Does that make me a glory chaser? Nah, maybe. However, through thick and thin, 6 a.m. kickoffs, trophies, and 10th place, I will forever be a blue. The first and only game that I had been to was in 2013 when Chelsea played Inter Milan at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis, Indiana. Chelsea were on their U.S. tour after winning the Europa League final, defeating Benfica 2-1. The Blues came out firing on all cylinders with a goal from Phil Daniels' favorite player, Oscar. Eden Hazard would provide another goal in the coming minutes, with every member of Mourinho's side getting a chance for playing time. This experience was incredible for me because we all know during these tours abroad, many of the first-team players get a chance at a vacation and time off. I was incredibly lucky to see all my favorite players through their time on the pitch was short. They played a great game. Terry, Cole, Hazard, Mata, all with amazing performances. This was also a special time for me because I took my younger brother, who was never a football fan, with me. Needless to say, I have converted him into a lifelong Chelsea fan. The worst game I ever watched was 2012 Chelsea vs. Newcastle at the St. James Park. Newcastle always seems like a bogey team to Chelsea, except for the 2016-17 season when they were in the championship and we won the league. Two games of bliss, in my opinion. It's a slap in the face every time this game comes on the TV, with Papi Cisse making that ridiculous shot from the far left side with his outside foot over Czech's head. Chelsea would go on to lose that game 2-0 and pushing to get into the Champions League position with only two games left in the season. Honorable mention to that game against Newcastle will be the end of Chelsea's 13-game win streak with a 2-0 loss to Tottenham. Deli Alley scoring those two headers. Ugh. The best game I ever saw. 2017, Chelsea vs. Arsenal at the bridge. Or as I like to call it, the run. Eden Hazard gets a flick from Costa just in front of the halfway line, and the rest? Well, you can ask Coughlin's rear end. Chelsea would go on to beat London rivals soundly with a 3-1 victory. Could have been a clean sheet if future blue Olivier Giroud didn't get on the end of a cross in the box. To be honest, the first season of Conte was a magical season. With the introduction to the 3-4-3 system, no team knew what to do. 
Everything was beautiful then. I'd like to thank you guys for giving me this opportunity. And again, America has plenty of Chelsea fans out there. We fight, we bleed, we cry, and we love this team. So thank you very much for this opportunity. I look forward to hearing from you guys soon. Thanks. And we're back, Andy. Um, what do you think about that? Um, it's, it's, it's fun hearing from somebody over the pond. And he said to me, um, he hopes that you don't think he's a plastic fan because he's only seen Chelsea and friendlies in America and hasn't seen Chelsea over here. He's not a plastic. That's devotion, isn't it? Getting up at those sort of times to watch Chelsea regularly. 100%. Yeah. I, I look, I, the, the fact that you are privileged enough to be able to go to games at Stamford Bridge doesn't make you a better Chelsea fan than somebody that, that puts the, the effort to get up at ludicrous hours in the morning um, to to follow the team from, from thousands of miles away. We are one big Chelsea family and I think this kind of match-going fans mentality can be a little bit toxic. I'm lucky enough to have been able to watch Chelsea at Stamford Bridge and, and, and away uh, for decades um, and, and that, that is, that's a huge important part of my life but if I was unable to do that, if I was in a country a long way away where access to those games wasn't possible then I'd be disappointed if somebody thought I was any less of a fan when I was putting the effort in to watch every game and engage with every game and be part of every game and support my football club. So no, I don't think you're a plastic. I think you're a proper fan like me. Hurrah! Well done. You've got Andy. I think seal you're a proof. plastic. <laughs> you're a massive plastic. You, you have the ability to go to games and you don't. <laughs> oh, here we go. You have to have to get some abuse in somewhere. Well, look. The last point I make is he sent me. Uh, I mean, heart problems. What kind of an excuse <laughs> is that? <laughs> I know I'm a plastic. You're right. <laughs> Maybe I should get a plastic heart. Um, but uh, he said he sent me a photo. I love the fact that Blake has his third grade class students watching the games with him. Oh, that's a great. I uh, like that. That's it's brilliant. But he he sent me a photo of something he put up on the board, which says, "What do good citizens do?" And uh, the answer from one of his students was, "Not let Liverpool win the title." Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so thanks, Blake. That's much yeah, appreciated. Thanks, that's great, mate. And and no, I don't think you're a plastic. I think you're a you're, you're a proper Chelsea, and long may you continue to be so. Okay, Andy, one last question for you before we sum up uh, Everton and get some predictions. Are you still recording? Yes, yes, I think we're okay. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, um, it's Everton at the weekend. This is uh, Liverpool come to town week. Um, they're both going to be difficult games, as we've talked about with Liverpool. Everton will be tough. It is the return of Carlo. Are you looking forward to that? Do you not think he'll get a huge round of applause from the crowd? Well, yeah, if we can spot him, because he might be in the stands, <laughs> mightn't he? Because he was sent off at the end of the game yesterday. Uh, and so he's he's got a ban. He might not be allowed to be on the touchline. So we might have to watch him on the screens waving. But uh, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, this is a, a manager that that we won the double with. That that you know that that was part of the important evolution of our football club. That had conducted himself with dignity and class throughout. That you know, I, there's nothing not to like about Carlo Ancelotti. So yes, of course, I shall stand and applaud the man when he returns. My lasting moment was him singing 
on the bus when they did the parade singing Chelsea songs and he just just went on and he was fantastic it was amazing to hear so yeah Carlo will be welcome back okay let's let's get a prediction from you for firstly for Liverpool Listen, it's going to be very, very tough. They are a very good team. I hope that they don't bring their A game with them. Uh, Let's just say, let's just say it'll be the magic of the cup uh, that we will all, the fans and the players, rise to the occasion and stun Liverpool with a 2-0 victory for Chelsea. Well, oh, I love it. I was going to go 3-0 because I'm ludicrous, um, but I, I won't. I'm going to go one all, and we win 7-6 on penalties. <laughs> <laughs> Just to eke it out. What the hell? You know, it's Tuesday night after all. Okay, Everton. Everton, I think... Um, <laughs> who knows? Who who knows? Who literally knows what's going to happen in that game? Can we beat Everton? Yes. Will we beat Everton? Dunno. Everton played very well yesterday, I thought, um, uh, against United. They they were very, very unlucky at the end not to, not to win with a, frankly, bizarre VAR decision. Uh, look, they are a, a team who are a bit like us. They're maddeningly inconsistent. They have an awful lot going for them, but so do we. For me, honestly, it's got draw written all over it. I'm going to go one all. Okay, I'm I'm going to go I'm going to go two one because we can't keep a clean sheet. Okay, well that's it. This, this is the end of the podcast. Um, I'd just like to say thank you to Naz as always for his roundup, to to Blake and his students as well. Um, keep going over there in America. Keep the faith. Thanks for being part of the show. And Andy, as always, great to chat to you. And we will see you all next week. See you next week. This is a Playback Media production. Get all the associated links for this podcast at chelseapodcast.net. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey, Drew Scott here. And I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.